following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I think sometimes as, as human beings, we have a tendency to fashion God in our own image. We don't mean to do it. It, it just comes naturally. Uh, the cultures that we've grown up in tend to prefer certain character characteristics or character traits uh, in people. And, and so currently in Western culture, you'll find a lot of emphasis on the fact that, that God is love. And this is true. Um, but we tend to put a lot of emphasis on it. We like uh, to think sometimes of God single dimensionally. But God, in fact, like all of us who have personalities is not just single dimensional yes god is love but god has other personality traits and we need to acknowledge those as well those are clearly taught to us in scripture and so while god is loving god is also just and while god is merciful and god is gracious we find that god is also jealous and god also does punish We need to look at all of these different characteristics of God to get the full picture. I think that this is one of the issues that sometimes makes us uncomfortable when we approach the Old Testament. We like Jesus of the New Testament. We like how he dealt with sinners, at least most of the time. When you clearly read through the gospel, sometimes you see Jesus had very harsh words to speak. But we like Jesus of the gospels. We like the way that he didn't. Uh, react when people treated him poorly or we like the story of how the woman is caught in adultery and he, and he gives he shows mercy we like that side of God we like when Jesus sits and eats with sinners the emphasis on the forgiving God who is patient with his followers appeals to us the idea, idea of a God who's inflexible or sets up clear standards and would punish those who don't follow those clear standards is not appealing to our our modern senses, so to speak. We hear people make statements like, I could never worship a God who would condemn people to hell. We hear people say things like that. But when we say that, we're, we're beginning to set up our own standards. We are deciding what are the appropriate characteristics for God and what God should look like rather than letting Scripture reveal those things to us. We need to remember that while God interacts with man differently under the new covenant than he did under the old covenant, that God is still the same. God did not change between the old and the new testaments. And so as we approach the old testament, we have many, many things that we can learn about God, who God is, the characteristics of God. I think one passage that we can actually learn many things from about God and who God is, is Exodus 26, which is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. I think it has a lot to teach us about God. I'm going to go ahead and read through Exodus 26. If you've got your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and read along. If not, just um, listen. There's a lot of detail. I hope you had your coffee this morning so that you can, you can focus in for a while. We've got uh, 37 verses here. So this is God giving Moses instructions about the tabernacle. We kind of jump partway into the conversation. 
He says, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtains in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtains that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtains that is outermost in the second set. And you shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra remains at the lengths of the curtains, the cubit on one side, and the cubit on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together so that you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames, and there 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. Thou shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frame, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make the rings of gold for holders of the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it and you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold on four bases of silver and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil 
and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the seat, mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. It's a lot of detail. So at the beginning of of chapter uh, 25 and and verse 8, God tells Moses, Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so... uh, God gives instructions to Moses. He says, you're going to make a sanctuary. I'm going to dwell there in the midst of the people. So last week, we heard about some of the, the details of some of the things that would reside within the tabernacle. There was the table. There was the lampstand and the very uh, Ark of the Covenant. So this week, we're looking at the actual building of the tabernacle. And so while this may seem like a lot of details to us, we need to remember that actually there were a lot more details that could have been included here. Um, if you go online and search for different just pictures of the Jewish tabernacle or pictures of the tabernacle in the desert, you'll find there are hundreds of different renditions. So even though we've got a lot of detail here, there's still lots of different ways that one could interpret that and how that's put together. Luckily, though, Moses was shown a very clear picture. So in addition to all this detail, he was actually shown what God expected him to make. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says that what he was shown was a reflection of something that exists in heaven. So Moses had that extra uh, benefit that that we don't have. But the fact that so much detail is spent and so much time is spent on this description here should alert us to something that in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world at this time, this was all very important information. It was not just uh, details which one sort of just reads and then uh, puts aside as not being particularly relevant. From the ancient point of view, this was all very, very important. So the tabernacle was to be the dwelling place of God. The Hebrew word that's used for tabernacle there uh, essentially means a dwelling place or or a living place. So it was to be a place that God was to reside amongst his people. If we were to break down this chapter into uh, an outline, you've got basically verses 1 to 14 spend a lot of time talking about the curtains and you see here an image of the curtains. Essentially, there were, were four series of curtains that they were instructed to, to give. The first one uh, was made of fine linen. It was made of colored yarns. And it was to have cherubim like woven into it. And so um, here you see one rendition of what the cherubim may have looked like on the, on the red uh, ones there. There's... Again, hundreds of different ideas of what a cherubim is supposed to look like and, and, um, and so forth. But that was to be the very inner layer of the curtains. Uh, after that, you had a, a second layer of curtains that was made out of goat's hair. We presume that that was to protect the very inner layer. And then the very next layer was to be ram's hair that was to be put over that. And then there was a fourth layer. And quite frankly, we're not sure what kind of animal they're talking about. Some people assume it was a badger. Some people assume it was a, um, 
uh, a sea cow. But there was another fourth layer of, of skins that was intended to protect all of this. Uh, and all of this was held together by a system of bronze clasps and loops. And then uh, 15 to 30 talks about the framework of the temple. And so you've got this system of uh, essentially boards or frames which, which stand up over which all of the curtains lay themselves. You've got as a base, you've got silver in, into which these things uh, stand and everything is draped over it. Again, this is all put together with uh, gold rings. We're not 100% sure exactly how it all looked and went together, but, but this is one of our best guesses as to what this looked like. And then in verses 31 to 37, we have the veil and the screen. Uh, and so they were to make a veil, which was to hang between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This was also to be uh, made of, of the fine linen. There was cherubim to be woven into this uh, curtain. And then you had the curtain that went at the outside of the, at the entrance to, to the tabernacle, where people would uh, come and, uh, well, the priest would come and go uh, from within there. So, that's a rough outline of, of the details of all of this. And so, as we think about this and look at this, we can ask ourselves a question, essentially. What, what does the tabernacle tell us about God? What does the tabernacle tell us about God? The first thing I would say is that God is present. God is present. The tabernacle represented God's presence on earth. It was a symbol of his presence right there amongst his people. The tabernacle sat in the middle of the camp. They were given very specific instructions where the different tribes were to be in situation to the temple. And they were intended to camp in those different places. But right smack at the center of the community was the temple. God was saying, I am going to come and reside with you. God's presence was evident in the cloud that led them by day or the pillar of fire that was there at night, uh, which stayed over the temple. In addition to the, the symbol, though, itself of the temple, within the temple, um, we see that uh, the Ark of the Covenant was there or, or the Ark of the Testimony. Uh, the stone tablets upon which the commandments had been written were in the, in the ark itself. These were a symbol of the agreement that God had made with the people of Israel and that the people of Israel had made with God. God was with them, God was protecting them, and God was guiding them. It's interesting to note the very time at which God's giving Moses these instructions He's given them all these detailed instructions about the temple and what it's supposed to be like. Moses is up on the mountain. What are the people of Israel doing while he's up there getting all these instructions? Hey, where'd our leader go? He's been up on that mountain an awful long time. I, I, let, let's give up on him. Um, who's second in command? Oh, Aaron, Aaron. Um, tell you what, um, I think Moses is gone. Would you fashion some sort of image for us to, to worship? We, it seems either our God's gone or, or we need a symbol 
of, of the God that led us out of Egypt. So could, could, you, could you prepare that for us? Um, and so all of this, while God is telling Moses, I'm going to come reside in your midst, I'm going to be there right in the middle of the people. The people are they're busy rebelling. They're busy doing something else, pursuing some other completely different idea. Um, had I been God, uh, thank God I'm not, but had I been God, I, I suspect I would have said, you know, Moses, you don't know this right now, but the people are they're kind of in a mess right now. I, I think I'm going to go find myself another people, uh, people who are interested in, in actually uh, worshiping me and actually obeying me and actually following me. But what does God do? He shows mercy, even in the midst of this. He, he doesn't say, okay, that's the end of this. The end of you people. There are many, many places in the Old Testament where God clearly demonstrates mercy. I think we tend to overlook those a lot of the times, though, because we, we often have this idea in our mind about the God of the Old Testament and what the God of the Old Testament is like. That the God of the Old Testament is harsh and not willing to be patient and persist with people. But the truth is, when we look at, at, at books like, like Judges, God consistently had mercy on the people as they go through these cycles they repent, and then uh, a judge comes up and frees the people. They're good for about 20, 40 years, and then they go right back into the same things they were doing. And what does God do? Does he cast them aside? No, he follows his promises. He sticks with them. He shows them mercy. He saves them again and again and again. God does show mercy. Sometimes we forget about the stories in the New Testament where... There are sometimes uh, harsh punishments. We think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. All they did was lie about their giving. And, and that was it. Harsh punishment. Um, sometimes we forget about those things. God is consistently the same. So we see that God is present. The second thing I think that we can see is that God is holy. God is holy. While the tabernacle represents God's presence among his people, the structure of the tabernacle shows us that, that God is holy. He's there in the midst of them. The people of Israel belonged in proximity to God, but yet they could not enter the most holy place. They couldn't go in there and look. They couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, they couldn't even see the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, the high priest would go in. He would sprinkle blood on the seat of atonement. That was it. Uh, even when the Ark of the Covenant traveled around, uh, it was first wrapped with the curtain that went between the holy and the most holies. They first wrapped it up in that. Then they wrapped it up in goatskin. And then they wrapped it up in another blue cloth. And so all the pictures that you see uh, of the Ark, you know, out being carried around and look at it, it's all glorious. It was covered up. Nobody could even look at the Ark of the Covenant. It was set apart. It was holy. It was completely off limits. God was very near to them, and yet God was still set apart. God was still holy and to be given a lot of respect. The third thing I think that we can see is that God is superior to other gods. This is the best picture I could find of, of uh, them carrying the temple, the tabernacle, excuse me. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of options out there. So I, we've got our, our kids' rendition, kids' book rendition here of uh, them carrying around different parts of the, 
of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was portable. You could take it down. You could move it. And that's what the people of Israel had to do. Whenever the cloud or, or the pillar of fire moved, they packed up camp and they moved. They did this for 40 years. They followed wherever God told them to go within the desert. And so the tabernacle was portable. And so even though the Israelites were journeying in the desert, God's presence remained with them. In the ancient Near East, it was understood that, that gods were geographically bound. You didn't have gods that, that moved around that influenced power over significant geographical areas. That's why, for example, when the people of Israel came into the land, they were constantly worshiping Baal and Asherah. They were, they were worshiping the local gods because they understood that, that they've got power here in this area. But God's not like them. God can move. He's not like those other gods. He is superior. When people pack up camp, God moves with them. His presence moves with them. So God is superior to the other gods. So thinking about these things, what can we learn from these things for, for our own lives and today? Going back to the first one, uh, God is present and God is present with us. So after Exodus, people, they left, uh, the people of Israel left Egypt. They, they took an exodus. They went out of Egypt. They were given instructions on building the tabernacle. And so they, they built the tabernacle. After they went in and secured the land and they were given kings, then they built the temple. The temple replaced the tabernacle. But now under Christ, we, we have a new covenant. And so where does God reside? Does God reside in the tabernacle anymore or the, or the, the temple? No, God, God, God resides in us. So, so things have changed. The way that God interacts with us has changed. God was in the midst of the people there when the tabernacle moved around. Uh, they moved with him. God's presence was with them. But today, God resides in us. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. If God resides in me, how does that reality impact my life or how should it? impact my life as I interact with other people do I keep in mind that that God <laughs> resides in me as I'm out uh, driving in traffic and I'm annoyed with the people around me uh, and words come out of my mouth uh, am I remembering that that God resides in me uh, as I attempt to lovingly discipline my children, am I remembering that, that, that God actually resides in me and is present and very aware of everything that I am saying and everything that I am doing? What about when I, when I disagree with my spouse? Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this to happen to me. It ha happened to, if this ever happened to you, it happened to me a couple times where you're, uh, discussing something with with your wife and one of your children comes in and says is everything okay in here so, sounds like you're arguing no 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 we're not arguing we're discussing just close the door go back out we're going to continue our discussion <laughs> uh it happens uh but do we remember that that that, that god is is here within us hearing everything that we say everything that we do very much present with us uh, what about when I talk to others about 
my colleagues who are making my life difficult at the moment? Do I remember that God is right there with me? I may not have that strong visual reminder of the Ark of the Covenant uh, right there, but it doesn't change the reality. God is there. Uh, Imagine if the Ark of the Covenant was near us. Imagine how we would speak, how we would act. We would have a very visual reminder that God is, is, is present. But we don't have that, but God is still present. So the second thing is we think about God is holy. God is holy. Do I treat God that way? Do I treat God as holy? Western culture as a whole uh, has become widely egalitarian. It means we like to believe that everyone is essentially, essentially equal essentially has equivalent uh, social status. Uh, In the West, it's generally believed for some reason, though, uh, if you're a celebrity or if you're rich, we give you special special status. But but, but outside of that, we generally believe that, um, I'm speaking broadly in the we sense here, but um, broadly in the sense, we we believe that uh, people don't have uh, special status. We should treat everyone more or less the same. I think sometimes this casual view of relationships, I think we let that seep into our views and our expectations of our interaction with God. Uh, We want to treat God just like we treat anyone else. We need to remember that God loves us. God is our heavenly father. And God wants to have a relationship with us. But he's also holy. He's not to be treated casually. He is set apart. He is very different from us. Sometimes I feel like we've maybe we've lost our awe of God. We have to remember God is the very creator of the universe. The one who spoke the world into being. The one who in his creativity created a whole variety of of animals and, and organisms. A lot of which we don't even know about yet. We haven't even figured them all out yet. We don't even know. What is out there that we don't even know about yet? God created all of these things. He's the one we can't see. If we even saw his glory, we could no longer have life in us. He's that significant. God is holy. God is beyond description. The third thing is that God is superior to other gods. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves is, are are we declaring that to other people? If we really believe that God is superior to to other gods, are we telling other people? The context in which we live, uh, or the context in which the people of Israel lived, is not that radically different from our context here in Thailand. Most Thai would believe in a very active spirit world with spirits that have influence in very specific geographic areas. And so a spirit house speaks, seeks to respect the spirits that reside within that area, within that, that, that land, that property, seeks to, to appease them in, in ways. Um, amulets uh, protect those who, who wear them or, or those who sometimes are, are nearby them. There's a very specific geographic idea to the spirit world. And yet we believe in a God that's not geographically restricted. A God that is far superior to any other spiritual power 
in this world. A God that created the world and, and everything that is in it. And this very God offers freedom. Freedom from fear. We don't need to fear the spirit world any longer. Are we taking this opportunity to share that with those we come in contact with? While some of us, that may not be our primary reason for being uh, here. Many of us have tasks that involve other broader regional responsibilities or, or specific, very specific responsibilities. It still should be a part of our daily Christian life that the people we come in contact with, that we're taking opportunity as it comes to share with them the hope that we have. So in summary, a few things for us to reflect on in closing. God is present with us. Are we living like it? God is holy. Do we treat him as holy? And God is superior to other gods, any other spiritual being that is out there. Are we declaring this as part of our Christian life? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.